Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 16, and then 22 through 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word. There you go. You guys got it right. Uh, that is that is a passage as it's read that's worthy of being um, taken in and responded to. 
Uh, so good morning. My name is Drew, one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to uh, be with, uh, here with you this morning. We continue in a series, as you are now aware, uh, from the book of Revelation, the last four chapters anyway. We're talking about hope this Advent. And we've defined hope like this. We've defined it as living in the present moment, deeply affected by the promised future. Hope is living in the present moment, deeply affected by the promised future. Jamie Smith, who's a professor at Calvin College, has written a number of books. And his contention in most of those books is that we are not so much being pushed through life by our beliefs and our convictions and our values as much as we're being pulled forward by an imagined future. In other words, he says the motivational core of who we are as as people, of our lives, is the telos. uh, That is the vision of the future that we're headed towards. And so he says this, he says, to be human is to desire what he calls the kingdom. He says every one of us is on a kind of Arthurian quest my, my daughter's reading that book right now in school. An Arthurian quest for the Holy Grail, that hoped for, longed for, dreamed of picture of the good life. It is the kingdom that pulls us to get up in the morning and suit up for the quest. And so we know this. I mean, this makes sense to us if we stop and think for just one minute about it. A pregnant mother deals with morning sickness and all of the discomfort. That's a nice word, isn't it? That comes from nine or ten months of pregnancy, a little human being living inside of you, because she knows, she knows that the day is coming that she'll hold the baby in her arms. It's just around the corner, and the joy of the prospect of that day is, is worth it. Uh, we know this. Uh, it's, it's finals week for many of the students, or you're just coming out of finals week and maybe home for, for the Christmas holiday, but how do you get through... All of the work of finals week, well, it's because you know at the end of the week, it's vacation. And it's the, it's the, you know, it's the vision of vacation time that allows you to put in the all-nighters that you need to during finals week. We get up in the morning and we trudge off to work with a picture of what our, of what, of what our, the work is going to allow our life to be or a picture of retirement and what retirement will be like beaches and golf courses and long mornings with the paper and coffee and no deadlines bearing down on us, whatever it might be, every one of us. In every one of us, there's a picture of the good life in our imagination and the choices that we make. This is what Jamie Smith says. What we spend our time and money and energy on are all in the pursuit of that thing, whatever it is. However we imagine the kingdom, we're being pulled through life by the telos that we imagine for ourselves. So to be human is to desire. But what makes Christianity different, the reason we're spending time on this this Advent, what makes Christianity different is that the future deeply affecting our present is not the birth of a child, it's not Christmas break from school after finals week, and it's not retirement years as wonderful as those things might be. The future that deeply affects The present of believers is heaven. And so Advent is a yearly reminder of this, these weeks leading up to Christmas. No matter how good we have it in this life, there is something still coming. There's something something that's still on the way, and that something is the true longing of our hearts. It's the true kingdom. And this truth 
is hard for us to hold on to, I know, because most of us in this room, particularly, have the means and the talent to realize the dreams uh, and, and that we hold to. You know, we, we, we're able to really see our dreams come true. We're able to build our kingdoms in this, this life, most of us. And this is the reason, if I can be completely honest with you this morning, that our Christianity has so little potency. C.S. Lewis said that the people who do the most good in this world are the ones who think about the next the most. And the only way to live Christianly, distinctively Christianly, is with hope. Hope in a future that is beyond this world, but that will go on forever and will never be taken away from you. And that makes the best parts of this life, this future, this future hope that we're looking at here, makes the best parts of this life like playing in mud puddles in the street compared to a vacation at the beach. Only heaven can make you truly brave, radically brave and generous and kind. And so this Advent, we've been looking at the last four chapters of Revelation because they describe in great detail the future in heaven our hearts long for and are waiting for. And the things that John has to say here at the very end of our scriptures have incredible potency. What he has to say here can cause you to live with joy and peace in the middle of really hard times. When You know, we, we're lucky this morning, aren't we? We didn't come here with the fear that somebody would set off a bomb and kill a third of us. But it's happening to our brothers and sisters in the world, and they live, let's be honest, with, with an energy and a potency for their faith that we don't. And I can't help but wonder if it's not that circumstance. But what we find here has the power to break through the complacency that's so a part of our culture and the Christian subculture that we're a part of. And that's why we're here, because each of these chapters presents our future with a different metaphor. So two weeks ago, we talked about the feast. Last week, we talked about the battle. And this week, and here, here in chapter 21, heaven is pictured for us as a city. Now, there are three things here that I want you to see, and you got to know, uh, when you're a pastor like I am, you really do come to a text like this, which is like, this is like the text of all texts. You with me? I mean, this is the one, I've, I've been pastoring, I've been doing this for eight years now with you guys, and I can't remember a time when Susan read and the response in the room was, oh, amen, right? So you know that too, but when you're a pastor, you think, I may only get one shot at this, and so you feel like you got to say everything you possibly can. So i got a lot to say this morning, I just need to warn you. And when that happens, I tend to talk really fast, and I apologize. I'll try not to do that, but it's kind of either that or we're here for a little bit longer, and then people get antsy and nervous. But there's a lot. There's a lot here, and I don't want to rush by it because this is, this is really, really important stuff. And so what we see here as we talk about the city is the city is characterized in a number of different ways. I want you to see, uh, first, what it means for God to be making us into a city, and that's this picture of the New Jerusalem. So you see the New Jerusalem here. But secondly, I want you to see how it is that God intends to turn us into a city. And by that, we're going to see this, this image of uh, not only is the, uh, is the city here in Revelation 21 pictured as the New Jerusalem, but also as the New Temple. So you have the New Jerusalem and the New Temple that God intends to make us a city and how he's going to do that. But then also we're, we're, we're told what happens when that begins to happen and what, what's ultimately going to happen in heaven as that transformation takes place. And that's the new heavens and the new earth. The city that comes down is, is set in the middle of a whole new a whole new place, a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, so those are the three things that we're going to do. Uh, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, and the new heavens and the new earth. Let's talk about each of those in turn, beginning first with this idea that the city that we see here is the new Jerusalem. So look at verse 1 with me. I saw a holy city, the holy city, 
The new Jerusalem, he says, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so you see that heaven is described as a city. He goes on in great detail, doesn't he, as the text continues. And this city is a metaphor in the Bible for human society and culture. It means that heaven will be a human society, but renewed and, and flourishing. And if that disappoints the introverts in the room, like me, I'm sorry. Heaven will not be a never-ending Corona commercial lounging in a deck chair on some deserted beach. It will be probably a whole lot more like Times Square on New Year's Eve. We will all be urbanites in heaven. All throughout the Bible, God is described as an urban planner. He, he told Adam and Eve in Genesis, if you remember, to multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And that's a call to culture making. It's a call to city building. We are to be build, building cities. God's salvation in the scriptures is, just, is described as a city. Isaiah 25, for example, says we have a strong city and he sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So God's saving and redeeming his people is characterized as a city building project. The New Testament says that Abraham and the patriarchs in their wilderness wanderings, they were looking for a city, Hebrews 11.10, whose architect and builder was God. So all of these Im images and, and references to cities in the Bible challenges our individualistic way that we approach reading the scripture and, and, and spiritual things in general. But what's the significance? I mean, what is the teaching? Well, one of the things we learn here is that God's goal in redemption is much bigger than we might imagine. Uh, this, this city is called, this new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, twice here in verse 1, and then again uh, later, it's the image of the bride. And here's part of what we're being taught here, is that you are not the bride of Christ. I am not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Does that make sense? Together, we're the bride of Christ. We together are the one that Jesus is coming to marry. So heaven is a city. God's goal in redemption is the transformation and the flourishing of human community, not just individuals. I mean, we are, we are more than just, you know, the individual parts of the whole. We are not just broken people. What happens when you put two broken people together? You get a broken marriage. You get broken relationships, broken friendships. And if that's not bad enough, get enough broken people together... And we can do a whole lot of damage. I mean, our city, the city that we live in, is broken. We have problems. Just ask Brad. I mean, who, ask, you know, ask a number of different people. Ask Joe Bogdan. We have problems uh, that have no earthly fix. And part of what we're learning here is that God does not just want to heal us individually. We have to stop thinking of everything that God is doing in our lives just through the lens of, lens of some individual experience with him. He wants to do more than just heal us individually. He wants to heal us together and in healing us to bring healing to the whole world. That's what we learn. And so the city is called the New Jerusalem. You see there, the holy city. And, and that's significant. Jerusalem was God's city. It was the eschatological city. It was the great city of the end times, right? It was the city where the temple was. It was, in other words, it was God's hometown. God had a house there. And Jerusalem was the place where you went to be with God. It was the place where you went to be with God's people. And so John describes heaven as the new Jerusalem. And that tells us something about what heaven will be like to a Jewish person, which again, it's hard, you know, it's kind of hard. We have to really work 
to get ourselves in the right mindset here, but to a Jewish person reading this, to hear, in heaven, you're going to live in the city of Jerusalem in the shadow of the temple. It would have been something like, it would have carried a certain weight, and it would have been something like someone saying to a young person today, and you know, you're going to live on Madison Avenue in New York City, or you're going to live on the hill in Washington, D.C., or you're going to live in the historic district of Charleston, South Carolina, all wrapped in one and, you know, so much more that we can't even imagine, but that's what it would have sounded like to their ears. So the description of the New Jerusalem tells us something about what heaven will be like. It will be the fulfillment of our deepest desires and dreams, but it also tells us something about what's wrong with our lives now. It teaches us first that we're alienated from God. I mean, Jerusalem meant the presence of God to the Jews. It was the place that you went to meet with God and so we're told that, when, that what the city coming down means is, look, verse 3, now the dwelling place of God is with men, we're told, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will himself be their God. And so this is the promise that God will finally come to dwell with us as we desire for him to, that we were made for that. We were made to dwell with him. It was, it was this way at the beginning in the garden when the first man and the first woman walked and talked with him the way neighbors stroll around the neighborhood together. But not anymore. Because of our sin, we now dwell east of Eden in the wilderness, cut off from God's presence like a flower in a drought. We were made to draw our strength and our warmth from the sunshine of, of his love, but the night has fallen and Winter has come, and he is bread and drink and breath to us. But not only that, the city imagery here also means not only is it, is it, is it tapping into the sense of that we are alienated from God, but because we're alienated from God, we're alienated from one another as well. We're cut off. We don't see one another anymore. Our, our, our interactions with one another are full of misunderstandings and hurt feelings. There's competition instead of collaboration. We have developed exoskeleton, hard exoskeleton shells of selfishness to keep from getting hurt. But what's happened is, is it's made us hard-hearted on the inside too. And so we live with suspicion and greed instead of warmth and generosity and compassion towards one another. And this is the cause for great heartache for many of us because we we go through our life feeling left out and lonely and out of place much like i thought this week of ebenezer scrooge in a christmas carol standing out in the snow if you remember every single retelling of the story always captures the scene of him standing out in the snow cold and alone peering into the window at the glowing firelight and friendship of christmas's past and present and it's how we feel but here's the good news of the passage, that it won't always be this way. Because heaven is a city. And because it's a city, it's a place of belonging and collaboration and culture making. And we'll be safe there from the heartaches of this life. We're told here, verse 1, that the bride has made herself ready. You see that? And again in verse 9, that this, that this city, the bride, the bride of Jesus has made herself ready and, ready and now she's coming down the aisle to meet with her bridegroom, so to speak. She's adorned there, verse 1, for her husband. And I, I just would say to you this morning, that's not work you do on your own. That's work we do together. By becoming a church of love and kindness and forgiveness as we're meant to be and as we one day will be, brides 
beautify themselves for the sake of their husbands. So if we love him, we will begin even now to become his beautiful bride by doing the hard work of purifying and redeeming our relationships with one another. Every call in the scripture to get yourself ready for his coming is a call to community. Let me say that again. Every call in the scripture to get yourself ready for his coming is a call for you to do the hard work of community so that together we become a beautiful bride. Because heaven is a city, the new Jerusalem. But secondly, we see here not only is this, this city described as the new Jerusalem, but it's also described as the new temple. So we come to verse uh, 22 at the very end of the chapter. John writes, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So um, this is a really interesting thing. This isn't the only reference to the temple. The passage is really full of allusions to the temple. So the city really is described here as, as the new temple. Uh, I would say it this way to you. The city itself is the temple. I mean, the reason we read, you may have wondered, why are we reading? You know, Susan, that was a long passage. Part of it is just too beautiful to not read. But the other part is... That you read all the way through verse 16, and, and you kind of get bogged down, don't you, by the time you get there, about how many gates, and the gates here and here, and then somebody measures. You see there in verse 16, we're told the city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width, its length and width and height are equal. And you may think, do we really need to read all of that? That's not the good part of the, of the passage. I'm going to tell you, that's the best part of the passage. And here's why. Because what you have here is a cube. If you look carefully, he's measuring, and he's measured off a cube. It's the same length and width and height. And, 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 you know, like that, if, if, you, if you're familiar, you know, if you're familiar with the Bible, like these people that he's writing to would have been, you would have immediately thought of something very specific because there's only one other place in the whole Bible where you come across a cube. Anybody have any idea where that is? The Holy of Holies. I mean, very specifically there in Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy as God is specifying what the temple and what the tabernacle are supposed to be like. The Holy of Holies is a cube. And so this innermost part of the temple, what's called the Holy of Holies, that housed the Ark of the Covenant, the footstool of God's throne. It was the place of God's presence where no one could enter except the high priest and him only one time a year because it was the place he went to meet with God and to make sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people. And so the measurement of the, of the city here, see, this is where we go wrong with Revelation sometimes. It's not just information. It's symbolism. It's theology. The Old Testament, the whole system, we're told, was meant to remind people of their sin. That was the purpose of the temple and the tabernacle, that God was off limits, that you couldn't get to him, that there was layer after layer, door after door, curtain after curtain of separation between the people and God, and it conveyed what... A theologian named Vern Poitras calls the remoteness of his presence. That God really was far off, that he wasn't around, that he wasn't, you know, you couldn't get to him if you wanted to. In Narnia, the world is in winter until Aslan comes and his coming begins to thaw the ice. But our world, our world is in winter too. That's what we're being taught. Our world is in winter. Now, not Florida, obviously, but everywhere else. It doesn't really work, the metaphor here for us. But our world is in winter, and God's presence is the sun that warms and gives light. And that makes what we read here so wonderful. Here, look, there's no temple. There's no holy of holies. The whole city 
has become the new holy of holies. In other, in other words, there's not one little spot. There's not one little room off in a corner somewhere down an alley and around, you know, and you finally up the stairs and there it is where God's presence dwells and no one can get in except this one guy and him only one time a year. No, his glory now, we're told, will be the, becomes the light that we walk by. His love will be the sunshine that warms us. His presence and glory will be the electrical grid that the whole city works by. And we will walk and talk with him again. And it will be the healing of every hurt. I would say it would be like spring after a long winter. Because that's the metaphor I've been using, but that doesn't work in Florida either. So I've run out of language. Can you believe that? And really, I'm leery of trying to explain right? We try to explain and we just miss the text. Just read the text. And I promise you, if you just sit with the text and read it, it's all you need. It's how I know the Bible's true. It's because just to hear the very reading of it taps into something in my heart. And so I really don't need many words. But notice, I have a few more, unfortunately. Notice, notice the city is coming down out of heaven. You see that? The city's coming down, and that, that's significant too. It means that salvation is by grace. In the Gospels, if you remember the story when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, the veil in the temple, that reminder of God's remoteness, God, the remoteness of his presence, the veil there which separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelled, was torn in two, we're told, and this symbolized that the way to God's presence was being opened because of what Jesus had just accomplished on the cross. It was, it was closed before, and now it's being ripped open. But if you remember the little detail there in, in the Gospels, most of them say it this way, the veil was torn. But do you remember? How was it torn? From the top to the bottom. It's a small detail, huge implications. The veil was torn from the top to the bottom. In other words, in other words, the door that separates us from God is a door that has to be opened from the inside. Salvation is something God must do. We stand at the door and knock, as Revelation says, but the door can only be opened from the inside. And the city coming down is a picture of God's grace, that God has bridged the gap that stood between us. God has broken through the veil that separated us, not the other way around. Salvation is by grace. It comes down. And, you know, and isn't what the, that what we celebrate at Christmas? What do we celebrate at Christmas? God coming down. The text says there's no temple because, look at verse 22, because the Lamb is its temple, and it goes on in verse 23 to say that there's no sun in this city because the Lamb is the light that gives light to the city. So Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where God and man meet. He is the Lamb. Because of his death on the cross in our place as a substitute for sinners, he is the one that made all that we read here about in Revelation 21 possible. And that's, that's what verse 22 and verse 23 mean. The lamb is the temple. The lamb is the lamp. There's no temple in the city because the lamb's there. And when the lamb's there, you don't need a temple. You don't need to go to some holy place to meet with God. You go to him. He's the place you go to meet with God because he's very God himself. Sin is the problem. Sin is the infection causing all of the symptoms of disease in the world. But Jesus Christ... 
according to John's gospel, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? So on the cross, Jesus endured God's remoteness. More than that, actually, he endured complete God-forsakenness so that we might have the light and warmth of his presence. In Jesus, God has dealt with sin. The curse, we're told, has fallen upon him. And because the curse has fallen upon him, now can come the healing. Isaiah 53, 5 says, by his wounds, we are healed. Malachi 4, verse 2, the prophet says, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. There's a chapter towards the end of Lord of the Rings called the houses of healing. If you're familiar with the story, the battle is over. The wounded have been gathered in the houses of healing, but, but, but their wounds are severe, and, and so they lay dying. And the king... Uh, and he's, he's the unknown king, but he, but he is the true king, though he's not recognized. The king rides into the city victorious, and the first place he goes is to the house of healing. And the cry, the cry begins to go up. I mean, it's just, I can't even, I wish that I could paint the picture for you. But the cry as he rides into the city begins to go up from the people on the walls. They just start to shout his name, and his name means the renewer. Okay, this is why you should read Tolkien, by the way. Okay. And he comes to the sick. He's just fought this battle and, and, and beat the enemy in his first, hit the first act of his new administration. He comes to the houses of healing to the sick and he begins to heal them because there's an old proverb uh, that was told of the true king that the hand of the king are the hands of a healer and so shall the rightful king be known. And it's true of our king as well. Because of his victory over Satan and sin and death upon the cross, he is the one whose hands can heal the brokenness of this world and of our lives. And that's what you see happen here. And so we come to the third part of what I want to say. This city is coming down, this new Jerusalem, the new temple. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is coming down into the middle of the new heavens and the new earth. And so what you see here is the result of God's presence and power all throughout this text and all throughout the Bible is newness. Everything God touches becomes new. When God comes into your life, the result is new. And so I've kept this until now, but this whole theme, the whole theme of this passage really is newness. So you see verse 1, the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 2, we're told it's the new Jerusalem. Verse 5, God says, I'm making all things new. And so over and over again, you encounter this word new. And I've told you that when you encounter a word over and over again, it's telling you that's what this text is really about. So we have to understand this word new. And they're actually... Two words. There's, there's two Greek words in the New Testament that can be translated new. One refers to something that is young, so it's something that's new in terms of duration. The other refers to something that is new in terms of quality, and that's the word. That's the word here. The closest equivalent that we have probably in the English language is when we say, you know this, right? When we say something looks as good as new, you look as good as new. Or that looks as good as new. Well, we sold our van recently, uh, and we put 150,000 miles on that van. Now, you didn't know I have four kids, so you know what that means, right? That means 150,000 miles worth of goldfish and candy, sticky candy, and all the cracks and crevices of that van. So a family of six can create quite a bit of wear and tear, but we were selling it to some friends, and so we wanted it to look as nice as possible. So I took it down to Pat's, and uh, I, I took out a second mortgage on my home to have them... Um, detail the car, 
Uh, but I, I went to pick it up, I, I, and I, I remember I went to pick it up, and I was like, I almost didn't recognize the car. I was like, what is that? It was so shiny and clean. I mean, it was, it was in better condition on the day that I sold it than any day that I drove it. <laughs> but I was glad for that because I love my friends, and I wanted, them to, I wanted it to be as nice as possible. It was like new. I mean, it was so nice that I almost backed out and refused, and refused to do it. But see, that's this word. It refers to something that has begun to fall apart but is put back together again. Something that is, that is faded but is now bright and shiny. Something that is worn out but is now fresh. And there's an important application of this principle here. As I've said, John is trying to motivate his readers with heaven. And you can get through hard times in your life because of heaven. That's what he's saying. But the problem is that when we think of heaven... We usually think, please hear me, we usually think of, 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 of heaven as something dissimilar to our experience in this life on earth. So you, you live your life on earth, and then when you die, you float up into heaven, and there's no connection between the two experiences. And so because of that, it's hard to be motivated by it. In fact, if you poll most Christians, they would tell you, you know, um, you know they're, afraid, they're afraid they're not going to like heaven. I mean, most people say that. I'm not sure I'm going to like it there. And, and the reason is... Um, you have to see uh, the way John, borrowing from, from Isaiah, puts it here. He says, um, he says that the, let me get this right. He says that um, what awaits us in the future is not heaven. Look here, but he says it's a new heaven and a new earth. And that's the key, is to see and put those two, those two concepts together. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And the reason that's important is because um, in our life here on earth, we have football and we have family meals and Christmas and mountains to climb and beaches to sit on and cities to explore on vacation and chocolate-covered strawberries. But in heaven, what? I mean, what? We're going to float around on clouds all day playing harps like the old Bugs Bunny cartoons put it? What? What's it going to be, you see? But John says, no, it's a new heavens and a new earth. And that phrase means there will be similarities between the life that we live in this world and the world to come. It means this. It means all of the best things that we love and enjoy, they won't be taken away from us. Actually, we're going to experience them, and they're going to be even better there than they were here. Revelation 21 is not describing something that didn't exist before. The most beautiful mountain view you've ever seen is like my old, worn-out minivan. Can you imagine how beautiful it will be when it's made new? I mean, the best vacation you've ever had in your life will feel like a preschool field trip. compared to the adventures that you're going to have there. The very best relationship will feel shallow compared to the knowing that we will share there. The joys of this life are dull compared to the joys that we will experience there. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine how good strawberries are going to taste in the new heavens and the new earth? See, the picture of heaven... John gives us doesn't emphasize the parts of heaven that aren't a part of our experience now. It's the opposite. John shows us the parts of our experience in this life, the painful parts, 
that won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. You see that? He doesn't, he doesn't take... He, he doesn't take things away from us and say it's going to be there's there going to be a lot of things that you have now that you won't have there. He says, no, there are a lot of things that you experience now, the bad things that you experience now that won't be a part of the experience there. And so we need to finish with just some of the details. OK, so let's try to wrap this up. I told you I had a lot to say, so I bear with me. But I want you to see I want you to see to fire our imagination some of the details. What we're told here in this text are the things that won't be there. So what won't be there? Well, let's just walk through the passage. Verse one, we're told that we no more see. You see that? And the sea is depicted in the Bible as something chaotic and rebellious that God must tame. So the Bible is full of allusions to sea monsters and such to describe cosmic evil. God reaching down to delivering people from the waters is a common illustration for salvation. So no more sea doesn't mean there's no beach. What it means is, is that there will be no more, no more threat from evil. That Satan will be permanently judged and excluded, thrown into the lake of fire. We're told in verse 27 that nothing unclean will enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Here's what it means, that evil will not be allowed to crash the party. Right? Are you with me? Every party, doesn't it always seem like every, the best parties, there's always something that seems to spoil the joy. There will be nothing to spoil the joy. We're told, what else won't be there? Verse 4, no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. No more tears, no more goodbyes, no more physical pain, no more depression, no more stress, no more emergency rooms, no more nursing homes, no more pharmacies, no more tax forms. Everything sad will come untrue. But we're told, what else won't be there? Verse 25, there won't be any closed doors, no more closed doors. We're told the gates of the city will always be open. There will be no more doors shut in your face, no more walls to separate us from one another. What else won't be there? Verse 26, there will be no more night. No more closet monsters. No more scary dreams. Can you imagine not being afraid? Can you imagine there being nothing to be afraid of? What we're told is what makes all of this possible is the presence and the glory of God. That God's presence and glory will be the power source. It will be the electricity station for the new creation. That there won't be any sun or moon. We will walk by the light of God's presence and love. And here's the thing. In John 1, we read. Remember what we read in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. And we have seen his glory. And that, of course, is the incarnation that at his first coming at Christmas, God came to dwell with us. And the word there, by the way, is tabernacle. It's the same word here, that, that in Jesus he is the tabernacle. And this is why Paul says, don't miss it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if you are in Christ now, already, you're a new creation. See, Christianity is more than improvement. It's more than just niceness. It's newness. It's not like training a horse to jump higher and higher. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature that can soar over fences it could never have jumped before. The goal of Christianity is not niceness, it's newness. Because if Christianity is true, if Christmas, if what we claim about Christmas is true, if the baby Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem is truly God come into the world, then niceness isn't nearly enough. That doesn't turn you into a nice person. 
That's a life rearranging, life altering truth. It makes you more than nice. It makes you new. Are you being made new? Now, are you being made new? Or are you just nice? Uh, as you contemplate that question, let me just ask three, three questions or make three observations as we come to the Lord's table for us to just consider as we come this morning. Are you being made new or are you just nice? One of the ways you can tell and answer that question is that first, the total newness of the future is characterized by the presence of God dwelling in the middle of his people. So the partial newness of the present begins with the same sense of God's presence, a presence in the middle of your life, something directing you, something remaking you from the inside. Do you sense a presence in the middle of your life turning you upside down? I mean, is Christianity just routine? Is it predictable? Or is there a presence that is constantly surprising you, challenging you? Are you nice or are you new? The first thing is presence. It's all about God's presence. But not only presence, but also your experience of the truth. See, nice people nod their head at the truth. For new people, the truth is alive. I was at a concert last night, and the guy was singing the song, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And literally, he couldn't get through. He couldn't get through it without getting choked up. But can I tell you, that truth that he was singing about should do that. Has the truth of the gospel become stale to you, or is it continually new? Are you reading the Bible, and it's something you've read a dozen times in the past, but it's just new? See, there's presence and there's this ever new experience of the truth. And then lastly, the way you can tell whether you're new, you've been made new, or just becoming a little nicer, it really comes down to the way you feel about grace. Look here, who gets into the city? This is the last thing I promise. Who gets into the city? If you come to verses 6 through 8, God begins to speak and he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, a nice person misunderstands this passage. They read it and they say, well, well, who's being thrown into the lake of fire? Well, it's the immoral people. Well, then who goes to heaven? Well, it must be the moral people, but that's not it at all. Look there. Who goes to heaven? It doesn't say, I mean, excuse me, it does say that the violent, the dishonest, the immoral people are the ones that go to hell, but it doesn't say that the compassionate, orthodox, moral people are the ones that go to heaven. So who gets into heaven? Verse 6 tells us. Who is it that gets into heaven? It's the thirsty. Who gets into heaven? It's not the moral person. It's not the successful person. It's the needy person. It's the thirsty. They're the ones, verse 6, we're told to get the water of life without cost. You can't pay for the eternal life that John is presenting here for us. You can't earn it. Nice people believe in Jesus, but they also believe that they're good people. And that's their hope. That's the coin that will pay their fare into the next life, as the old myths talk about. But new people know there's only one way into heaven. Verse 27, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What gets your name written in the book? It's not your accomplishments. It's not your moral record. It's the Lamb's book. Are you looking to the Lamb? I meet with kids for membership all the time, and I ask them the question, do bad people go to hell? And they look at me and say, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm. Then my second question is, well, then do good people go to heaven? Most of them kind of say, I, they, think, they, get the, they get the sense of, He's trying to trick me. 
But then they say, yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, they do. Good people, bad people. So bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven. They almost always say yes. And then I have to say, no, that's wrong. Right? That's wrong. Bad people and good people go to hell. Only people who know it's not their badness or their goodness that matters. But God's grace, only they go to heaven. That's the truth. That's the truth that brings newness. That's the truth that makes you victorious. That's the truth that all of heaven revolves around, but it's the truth that every moment of our lives as believers revolve around as well. That's the truth. When that sinks into your heart, then there's newness. And that's the opportunity before us at this table, so let's pray. I've gone too long. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning. So, Father, as we come now to this meal, remind us of that great truth and strengthen us with it Uh, because our hearts are always wandering and we are always forgetting and we are always not believing and we are always disagreeing and arguing with the reality of grace because our hearts just can't stand the thought that there's not some contribution that we must make. And so you must constantly be calling us back to the reality of your love for us in Jesus. And so we do pray that you would come uh, once again and wrestle our stubborn hearts into submission as we gather around this meal. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, that is the message of Christmas. And so receive this benediction with the promise that because in Jesus Christ God has come, uh, that his presence is truly here already among us, and and he is working newness in us as he sends us. And so that's that really is the promise uh, that this whole thing hinges on. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go this week in his peace.